This is Exodus 4, 1 through 5. Moses answered, What if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, The Lord did not appear to you? Then the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, Throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground, and it became a snake, and he ran from it. Then the Lord said to him, Reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake, and it turned back into the staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Oh, it's my lovely daughter, Gabriella. Her debut reading scripture. Yay. Well, we are in this series up through Advent called The Questions God Asks. And we're looking, uh, boy, it'd be kind of cool to do a New Testament version of this too, because Jesus asks a whole bunch of important questions as well. But we are looking at the questions God asks in some of these seminal Old Testament encounters with some of these really uh, big, big kind of defining moments that happen throughout Scripture. And so we've done a handful of them already. As you can see from the reading, we are in another seminal one. I don't know why I really like that word, seminal. You know what that, it's like big, significance, right? Changes things. So another uh, this is about as seminal as it gets in the Old Testament. This is the Exodus story. Um, the, the book of Genesis is just concluded with Joseph, the story of Joseph and his brothers. And the Exodus story begins with Joseph um, kind of reaching the end of his life. And we see the Pharaoh um, come in and the Egyptians. And that this becomes a big part of the story. And so that, that unfolds into the place where the Hebrew people are taken into slavery. It's a brutal, horrible thing. And so now we get this chapter and a half uh, conversation between Moses and God. It's a pretty long narrative. And certainly it tells us a lot about the call of Moses. But really the heart of what this is about and what the question is going to point back to, the heart of this chapter and a half conversation slash encounter with Moses and God is telling us all about who God is uh, in a way that's going to be... Um, uh, foundational for the rest of the of the scriptural story from this point forward. In fact, uh, we won't really get into this today, but it's such a wonderful part too. In chapter 3, you know, there's the burning bush, that amazing image. But this is where God reaffirms this personal name that the Israelites will come to know, God has. God gives them the name Yahweh, which means I am. God says, I am. And even me saying that, I'm like, so so cognizant of the fact, even even to this day, but especially back then, and for many streams in the Jewish community, the name Yahweh was and is so sacred that it would not even be said out loud. And so when we say the name, or when I say the name right now, Yahweh out loud, I'm even going beyond what many who treasure this account uh, would go beyond, or what some people did, they said it could only be in writing. You maybe have seen they would use the consonants Y-H-W-H, which is a way to kind of honor the name. But in chapter 3, we, get, we see that God is saying, this is who I am. I am Yahweh. I am the God who sees my people, who loves my people, who calls my people to covenant, who continues to fight for my people even when they continue to betray me and turn their back on me. And so this name Yahweh is going to become the kind of central way that the people of Israel uh, come to know God and to respond to God. And so that continues when we see this question uh, what's in your hand that God asks of Moses? This is part of that same encounter. Uh, God has revealed God's self as Yahweh. This is the basis by which uh, Moses is going to march into uh, 
Pharaoh's kingdom and announced that it's time for the Hebrew people to be released. So as we get to this specific part of the interaction where God says, what's in your hand? This is still built on the foundation of God as Yahweh. But now we're going to get this kind of pointed picture of how God, who is Yahweh, thinks about injustice. How God, who is known as Yahweh, cares deeply about the suffering of God's people. This is, comes up a lot in chapter 3. I've heard the suffering of my people. I'm responding to those cries. Uh, we're getting, you get these two images here um, that almost kind of tell the whole story of the Exodus, which then kind of almost tells the whole story of the Bible. So uh, there's the staff or the rod, right? God, God says, what's in your hand? Moses says, a staff, a rod. That's, that's kind of the practical one that we'll end with. Uh, but really, I don't think that one makes a whole lot. You're not ever going to get the full meaning of what the staff is without the image of what the staff turns into. So let's start there. That's what takes us deep into the story. Right? God says, what's in your hand? Moses says, a staff. We'll get back to that. Moses throws it on the ground. What does it turn into? A snake. A big old snake, right? And I don't think I'm probably the target reader for this because I think for most people when they saw a big old snake, that would be really scary, right? Probably a lot of you would say that. That would not be the case for me. I would actually be pretty enamored by a big old snake. Um, I've always been into snakes. It must be a genetic thing because Xander is into snakes now too. This is actually a big part of how I made money in high school. Um, where my dad lived down kind of Markham area, the hundreds, 160s kind of area, there's a bunch of abandoned fields there and you get all this debris and stuff and it was like a snake haven. And believe it or not, even though a lot of people are scared of snakes, there's an actual market. If you catch snakes and resell them, uh, teenage boys seem to like really get in. Every once in a while, a girl too, but especially teenage boys. So I had a little, I had a little business. I had three different kinds: the garter snakes or garden snakes. I don't know which one's the formal term even to this day. That was those were the easy ones to catch, and you only can get a couple bucks for those. But uh, we had, I, I don't think they're around anymore. I haven't seen one in a long time because, of course, I still look. But th- we had these things called green snakes. They were beautiful. At least that would be my my view of it. These beautiful um, uh, uh, light fluorescentish, almost green. And boy, if I could catch one of those, price tag, price went really big for that. Yeah, green snakes were a real delicacy. No, I was going to say delicacy, but it's not like they get eaten. They get eaten. They were just <laughs> kept as pets. The, the one, though, that the one that was like the big catch, if you could do it, and I'm sure there's like some toxic masculinity here in this thing, because we had these gigantic rat snakes that you'd find every once in a while, and it felt very mono-y-mono when, when I would go after these. These rat snakes were huge. Um, in trying to corral one of those and then resell it was kind of like the epitome of my little growing sense of self back then. So I think of the rat snakes in particular when I think of the staff because I, I caught a handful of good ones, but the, like I've got like my Moby Dick of a story. Like this rat, it is it was so big. Like I swear it was like four feet long, this one rat snake. So we had this like duel. I was chasing it, but I didn't even know how to catch it. Like how do you catch a snake that big? So I would try, and it would like you know lash out at me, and I back off, you know, and it would continue on, and I would keep chasing it. So we had this like hour long chase, um, and I won. Uh, uh, but it's because there was this, and this is how I know it was four feet long. There was this pipe, like a pipe, like, I don't know, the CVC pipes is that a thing? I don't even know. I don't know anything about pipes. I'm making this up as I go. But this like giant pipe that was like four feet long, and he crawled into there to escape. So I just carried this enormous pipe home and showed this off. I tried to sell it. Everybody was too scared to buy that one. But this was like a real defining moment for me. So when I think of Moses and the snake, probably most people are like, oh, that's scary snake. I'd be like, can I catch that thing? Anyway, that's probably not the most important part of this. Moses says, God says, what's in your hand? Moses throws it down, turns into a snake, all right? And so whether Moses has the awareness of this in the moment, I don't know. In fact, 
I suspect probably not. I know that whenever something happens in my life where it seems deeply symbolic and meaningful, it's not usually until after the fact that I really connect those dots. But for sure, the narrator of this story wants us real time to be able to connect the dots of the importance of the image, the metaphor of a snake as part of this large revelation of who Yahweh God is, part of this large revelation of how God is organized against injustice in response to it. So the snake becomes a big image. So, so you know your Bible stories a little bit. Is this the first time, that, let me use my seminal word again, is this the first time we have a seminal moment where we're being told about what God is like and what God wants for people, but where evil shows up in the picture in the form of a snake? Is this the first time we see a snake at the center of a big story where God is telling us what God is like? No, right? In fact, the first week of the series when we did Where Are You, that was on the back end of the, most, the first and most famous interaction of a snake. Right? And so remember that story together. This, there's, you have Genesis 1 and 2, the creation accounts from God, God showing what the world looks like when everything is operating according to shalom, according to, according to God's loving design. And so everything's working right. Adam and Eve are experiencing perfect union with God and beautiful union with each other, beautiful union with God's creation and their own sense of self. Right, so chapter 3, at the beginning of this, we see a snake show up. Right? And a snake represents... This is kind of the baseline story now, that there's God's creation of goodness and shalom and love and joy and peace. And then there's evil that really, at the end of the day, evil doesn't create anything in and of itself. Evil tries to thwart what God is doing. Evil tries to disorient and disfigure and distress that which God has built. Right? So this is the opening account of the Bible is God creating this beautiful place where we interact with God and with each other and with ourselves and with creation in a meaningful way. Evil shows up in the form of a snake. Now, so I think we could make that, I think the reader would want us to make that connection even if we didn't have the other cues. But just to kind of put it in the frame of what I think the narrator wants us to see, uh, there's, this, there's this real clear kind of connection point where the narrator wants us to see that in the same way that God created the Garden of Eden, a snake shows up. Now here's the new form of a snake. So um, if you've got that graphic from... Um, uh, Exodus 1, so if we go back just a couple chapters to Exodus 1. Uh, so this is, this, is kind of, this is kind of the narrator taking us from the transition from after Joseph dies and where Pharaoh emerges. So now Joseph and his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, all right, this is going to be, become the Pharaoh. A new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. And so here's the first words recorded from this Pharaoh. Look, the Pharaoh says to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal. And what's the word that's in English that's, that's translated there? We must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. Now, when the narrator uses this word that Pharaoh says that we must deal shrewdly with them, this is the same kind of description of what was used for the serpent in the garden, that the serpent was shrewd, cunning, knew how to manipulate and to kind of press in against the vulnerabilities of Adam and Eve. And so what the narrator is inviting us to see when in this kind of big interaction between Moses and God and in this interaction where God is saying, I am Yahweh, I am the God who delivers, who loves, who extends grace, who protects, who nurtures, but also who delivers from evil. So this image of a snake, 
right? When, when the staff turns into a snake, this is connecting it back to the story of the Garden of Eden. And if I go even just a little bit further, just to like really lock in what I think the narrator is inviting us to see, this is becoming clear that this is the framing of the story that we're going to see happen over and over again, that there's God's goodness and hope and life, vision of life for people. There's the presence of evil, and we're kind of caught in the battle between those. What is significant about this Exodus account, what the snake represents here with the Pharaoh, is we now, for the first time, see kind of the full picture of how evil works in the Bible. And I think it's good to remember this every once in a while, that evil... The Bi- I think the Bible has a very sophisticated way of talking about evil, more sophisticated, honestly, than I think just about anywhere I see, um, even when you're in like thoughtful activism spaces. I think whenever you remove one of these three, it's incomplete the way we think about evil. So now the Bible has been building up to this, but now we see all three forms of evil. So at one level of evil, it's just simply the fact that as individual human beings, God has created us in God's image to be able to do incredible good, right, to extend incredible love in the world, but also with free will means we can also do incredibly bad and as such can participate and even enact an evil, right? So this has been building. We see this with Adam and Eve who have the choice to either continue to participate in and guard the garden as God has called them to or to turn on that. Maybe you wouldn't call that evil per se, just a mistake, but it's showing the power of free will. But now it gets real clear in Genesis 4, another passage we did here, we see this like the camera zooms in on Cain, the offspring of Adam and Eve, right? And Cain is harboring jealousy and envy and anger in his heart and is actively contemplating doing something evil, right? And that's a real important account because God says, not only do you not have to give in to this, not only can you make the right choice, but I'm beseeching you to make the right choice, right? Like you must master over this stuff. You must choose the side of good, not of evil. But of course, Cain chooses the side of evil, and that's the first murder that we see in the Bible is when Cain kills his brother. Right? So this represents the fact that each one of us as individuals have the choice to fight against evil or be complicit with evil. Right? That's a big part of understanding evil in the world. What we see in this story is then, you know, what the terminology would often be used for this for talking about the more broader forms of injustice or oppression, you use a term like systemic injustice, right? Or structural injustice injustice or oppression, which you also see in this account. My shorthand way of of kind of thinking about this, right, is that the distinctions often being made is that you can't just think about individuals, their behaviors, good and bad. You have to look at certain kind of systems and structures form around that over time, right? So you could pick almost any system structure. Let's take real estate, for instance. If you know the term redlining, that's how most of our big cities were formed, right? Uh, But it could start with an individual's evil choice where, uh, where an individual banker says, I'm not going to give a loan to people that I don't want in this community. I will give a loan to people that I do want in this community. Right? You can see that's an individual form of being complicit with evil. But then you watch over time how that's other people were part of that, and then other institutions that are part of that, and then a whole way of life. And then you start to, it starts to broaden out where there's not even people who are necessarily overtly participating where they're saying, I'm doing evil. But the system is such that just by participating in it, you're covert with evil. right? And so... The gen- this, this account here is taking us, the, the, the Pharaoh account is taking us from just individual evil, which clearly this Pharaoh is evil, and it's real easy to make, a, make him the villain of the story. But the whole nature of this thing is that it has spread now from just Pharaoh across the board to the place where the Jewish people who were free up to this point are now enslaved by the Egyptians. 
right? You've got all the different structural forms of it. You've got the pharaoh himself, but you've got, you know, whatever his lieutenants are that carry this stuff out. You've got people who are actively participating. But then it's probably not super different than today's day and age, right? You have probably a whole bunch of people who are not inherently bad people, but just based on the day-to-day way they're living, they're complicit with this structural and systemic evil, right? So that, I, I would say this is all wrapped up in the snake. It's, it's, it's building on individual choice. This comes from the garden. It's building on systemic and structural. And then, you know, there's this a lot to hold, uh, but I think it's the only way you can really think of evil in a whole way. You've got the individual, the system structural, and then the Bible is real clear that there's also supernatural evil, right? That this is a part, big part of the biblical story, that in the same way God has created human beings, God has created celestial beings that were designed to participate in the goodness of God and the expression of God's kingdom, and that there are celestial beings who had the same ability to choose good or choose evil in the same way humans do, that there are many celestial beings led by the devil who chose evil and who are at work in the world trying to thwart the goodness of God to create harm. Jesus talks about in John 10, right? He talks about it in the form of a thief that tries to steal, kill, and destroy. And even that is in the story too. It's, I don't want to go too far off court, but one of the real interesting things about the Egyptian story is you get these other, there's, this is going to be a repeated pattern now where you get individuals who are evil, systems and structures, it's, Sometimes it will be the Persians, sometimes the Babylons, sometimes Assyrians, Rome. Uh, but then you also get the um, supernatural parts. So it's interesting about the Pharaoh. Many of these other places, the kings did not talk of themselves as a godlike figure. They were just super powerful kings. Um, but the Pharaoh actually presented himself as a divine figure, that he was like a demigod, right? Like you see movies built about demigods. I'm like thinking of Moana as one of them, but not that I'm trying to say he's like a Pharaoh. But this is the idea of like what a demigod was, right? That it was like some kind of fusion of the divine and a human being. And so uh, even with the, so the way, I'm doing a very fast version on this, but the way supernatural evil is talked about is it's a, it's a conspiring, it's a collusion between human beings, between the systems human beings create, and then evil strongholds and celestial beings that are in, in the universe that are actively trying to participate together to do harm. Okay, now that's a mouthful, right? Um, and yet it's all here in this story. And I think it is very important that it happens here because this is the story. Like all throughout the rest of the Old Testament, God is going to continually say, remember who I am. Remember what I've done for you. And every time that comes up, what is it that they're remembering? It's this. It's this understanding of who God is, is Yahweh. It's an understanding of who the snake is. The, 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 the presence of evil that can manifest through the canes of the world who make evil choices that can write, that manifest through the systems and structure of the world, like Pharaoh and his empire, that manifest through the supernatural complicity with evil powers that want to try to distort and disorient the work of God. So do you see why the snake is actually a really important part of this story? Right? Why when the staff is dropped, it turns into a snake. This is God starting to say, like, look, this is what we're up against. There's all these different forms of evil that we're up against. You know, the good news, it's getting to the good news that God is going to stand up to that and we're going to be involved with that too. But this is a big part of the story. This snake is reaffirming that these same kinds of realities that were there in the garden of God's goodness and vision of life, but also the assault that that's under by evil and they need to stand up to that. Now, fortunately for us, that has no relevance to today, right? Individual people don't do evil things anymore. There's no systems or structures that we would depict as being evil and harming to people, right? There's no way you can say when we watch what's happening in the world around us, when we watch what's happening in the community around us, there's no way we can say that evil is at work in the world, right? <laughs> yeah, no, that's, of course, 
very relevant and why this story is so important because um, when God says what's in your hand to Moses, it's recognizing that the snake is still trying to take down God's good work and that it has to be addressed at the individual level, has to be addressed at the structural level, has to be addressed at the spiritual level, all the parts of it. All right, so let's try to turn from the analysis of evil, but one that I think is really important because I think this gives us a kind of a whole view of what we're up against. And I would just say, yeah, I feel strongly on that. As a church, anybody who's trying to stand up against evil and stand for life, you have to be able to think of all three of those. You have to think about individual heart renewal. You have to be thinking about systemic and structural renewal. Thinking, I shouldn't laugh. This is serious. But I'm thinking of um, Dr. King. You remember when somebody said to him, "We shouldn't be concerned about changing laws. We should be concerned." I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but this is close to it. They were saying we shouldn't be concerned about changing laws. We should be concerned about changing human hearts, which of course is important to change human hearts. Um, and so uh, the detractors were saying we should focus on education on religious institutions. And Dr. King said, "I agree that it's important that we change hearts, um, but laws are important too because." If, I pa- if we pass a law that says you can't lynch me, that actually protects me. Right? So I may not have changed their heart yet, but it can really protect me. Or it just gets to this notion that you do have to, you have to address it heart level, system structure level, and then the spiritual level. Right? We've been using this language a lot here lately, that worship is warfare in this community. That what we're up against is economic, is social, is educational. There's no question about that. But you, just, you can just feel in certain places where evil is in league. <laughs> with those who are doing bad, and, and we have to have the eyes and the ears, the spiritual maturity to go up against that. All right, so let's say moving forward, what do we learn from the story? Let, 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 let me put it in, if I can, let this is kind of summarizing some of the things we've said. But he, moving forward, here's three kind of categorical things that I think are really important from this story that help us move forward. First, when we look at this question, what's in your hand, what God is taking Moses into? Again, interesting that before God tells Moses anything to do, he starts with the snake, right? It turns into this snake. And so uh, here's the first thing I would say is important from the story is that we remember this is the framing of the story of how the Bible talks about it. It's the Garden of Eden and a snake. This is kind of the two brackets of the story over and over and over again, that there's a God, Yahweh God, who wants life for people, right? This is the most important part of the story always, that this is who God is, that God wants life that God wants vitality, that God wants flourishing, that God wants us to live into the fullest, most mature, most healthy, most full version of who we are, and that evil is always real. That until, this, is, this is one of the reasons why actually heaven becomes such an attractive thing, not because we're trying to escape this world, but when, when it all comes together at the end, Jesus will return and finally vanquish evil, and we look forward to a world where there no longer is the constant threat of evil, but that's not where we live yet. We live in a world where the threat of evil is always present at the individual level, at the structural level, at the spiritual level. And this is like Moses, God is calling us to stand up against that. Right, that's the like broadest overview, I would say, of this, is that this is the framing of the story. It's Garden of Eden and a snake. These images are helpful ways to remember the story all the way through, and it's really punctuated here in Exodus 4. All right, second thing that I think is really important to bring from the story, this begin with a snake imagery is important. The second thing that I think is really important for the story, let, let, me, let me appeal to two different verses. Dave, if you don't mind, first going back to chapter 4, the reading that we did, um, I want you to look at that last verse because this is an important part of what, like there's something happening for Moses that's very specific. There's something much broader happening in this too. In verse 5, Yahweh says, this, all of this, this kind of conquering the snake, 
um, and what you're about to do. This is so that they may believe that Yahweh, whenever you see Lord like that, it's Yahweh, Yahweh, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Right, let me put that in my language, how I would say that. What God is saying is, what's about to happen right here is super important because my people are enslaved by the Egyptians and I'm going to deliver them from injustice. But it's also how I always want my name to be known. Yahweh is the God who cares deeply about suffering. Yahweh is the God who will always stand up against evil. Yahweh is the God who is a God of deliverance. Yahweh is a God who is a God of liberation. All right, and then this is, again, linked to the snake image. So if you go to that last passage, if you don't, if you don't mind, Dave, that Genesis 3, um, remembering this from the, you know, so the snake should be at the beginning of Genesis chapter 3, and then it finishes as God is kind of narrating at the end of this. It says, God said to the serpent, because you have done this, deceived Adam and Eve, cursed are you above all livestock and wild animals. You will crawl on your belly. You will eat dust all the days of your life. I will put en- enmity between you and the women and between your seed and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. I know there's a whole lot of theology in there, but the part I want to focus in on is God literally says to the serpent, you're going to have one line of seed that is going to continue to show up in the world. Adam and Eve are going to have a different line of seed. And from their line is going to come a deliverer someday who will stomp on the head of evil. Right? And then you get the crucifixion language of kind of it's going to be bitten on the heel, but ultimately... Jesus is going to come and deliver. Okay, kind of aware of them, like covering a lot of ground right now, but hopefully you're tracking with this. On this second one, what I'm so the first one was that this is the brackets, it's the garden and the snake. That's the story we find ourselves in, the God of liberation, the threat of evil. The second thing, what I'm saying from this, is it is a clear, emphatic declaration by God of who God is. God is the one who sees the snake and who ultimately will be victorious of the snake, who, to put it in the language of, Exodus 4, 1 through 5. It, Yahweh, the, the same God that was the God of Abraham, the same God that was the God of Jacob, the same God that was the God of Adam and Eve, this is the God who is always our God. And so when we think of Yahweh, we think not only of one who loves and cares, but we think of a God who stands up against injustice and evil because it's who God is. Okay? Third one, and kind of this is where we'll finish, making our way towards a little bit more practical here. Final thing that I think we, we that we take from this is remember, because the, the larger story is important. That, that we're, we're making our way to the staff, which helps gives us kind of a practical kind of thing. Although it still starts with the snake, but I don't think any of this lands as well as it land without seeing the larger story, right? The, this this larger story. So let's go to the snake one last time. So the sequence of the story: God says, "What's in your hand?" Moses says, "A staff." God says, "Throw that staff on the ground." Moses throws his staff on the ground, turns into a snake, right? God says, go get the snake, which is on one hand very empowering, showing that Moses can have authority over it. But isn't it really interesting? Where does Moses, where does God tell Moses, which part of the snake does God tell Moses to go grab? The tail, right? Now, as a semi-professional snake catcher, in my growing up years, I can confidently say this is absolutely the wrong way to catch a snake. When I chase that gigantic rat snake, you do not want to grab that thing by the tail. Because what happens if you grab by the tail? It can fully and will fully come back and take a big old swing at you, a bite swing at you, right? Uh, it's a terrible idea. You gently, of course, humanely step on the, on the neck right behind its head, and you grab it right behind its head, and this is how you handle a dangerous snake. So this is as opposite of a strategy as should be taken. So, so, so what, what's happening 
in that what God is doing this. It's kind of a double message a little bit, right? So what God is saying is, Moses, you can and must stand up against the snake in all the forms evil takes, and I'm going to give you the power, but it's going to be scary as heck. It's going to be scary, and it's going to be dangerous, right? I mean, there's just, there is, there is no other way to, to grab a dangerous snake by the tail. It's dangerous. It, is, it, is, it leaves you vulnerable <laughs> to evil kind of lashing back out and biting you. And so there's something so real to me about the way that this unfolds. God says, Moses, go get that snake, and I want you to grab it by the tail and understand just exactly what you're up against when you're doing it. And... Of course, the great news in this is God is saying, you can and you must. I feel like, here's the point I'm trying to get, this final piece. God's plan A, and I don't think there really is a plan B, God's plan A when it comes to justice and evil is that God's people courageously stand up and rise up against it. This is the plan. The archetype of Moses is that when God sees all forms of evil, spiritual evil, which, you know, that's bigger than any one person or a group of people, structural systemic evil, that's bigger than any one person, individual evil. Nonetheless, God says, I will intervene, and I'll do it through my people. And it's going to be scary, and it's going to be dangerous, but you can do it. And I almost kind of wanted to just do the whole sermon right there because... Um, there's so much that's so inspiring. There's actually a lot discouraging there too because what's sad to me is that most Christians don't actually live like this is the story <laughs> that God is calling us into life and that evil is attacking that we should rise up against it. Um, and even if we do act as that's a story, very few of us actually have the guts to go step out and grab that thing by the tail. In fact, I would go so far to say it's like this is why I think the church has lost credibility in a lot of ways in society is because we fight about all the wrong things and all the things that are most important. We're, we're just too scared and like most people who are scared, you never actually acknowledge that you're too scared. You call it something else, right? And you create a boogeyman and like you do all these things to do anything other than just say the obvious, that that is scary as heck to take that thing on. It is scary as heck to take on generational poverty. It's scary as heck to take on centuries of racial injustice and all the systems and structure that got created. Like it is scary to take those things on. So instead, <laughs> we'll make sure Christ is in Christmas or something, you know, something that's just like not the fight that is the snake that's going to like reach back and get you, right? So there's something so deep to me, so deep about the snake representing Pharaoh, slavery, evil, injustice, individual, structural, spiritual, the whole thing. And God says, this thing's dangerous, it's scary, but this is what I'm calling you to do. And Moses becomes the archetype for all of us, right? That through the release of the Holy Spirit, through the empowering of the Spirit, who we join in with Jesus, who's going to be the one that crushes the head of the serpent, we are to participate, all right, so it's really, it's a call. It's a call to action. It's a call to rise up against evil. And then that is, of course, where the rod becomes just a really helpful thing. Um, God says, what's in your hand? Moses says, a staff, a rod. And this is the part we can, we, we can reflect together. What, what, what seems so significant? Well, the, the, the rod was just a very ordinary thing, right? A staff is just a really ordinary thing. Uh, the staff is something that Moses was already in possession of. Right? We kind of built on this last week a little bit with Jacob. It, it's, it's rare that something fundamentally changes when you step into God's call. Usually what happens is the things that God has already given you take on new life and new power. Right? Moses already had this staff. That was kind of a central tool for shepherding, and that's what he had been doing for years before this. A staff, a rod, doesn't have much power in and of itself. Right? It's only when the Spirit of God breathes into it that it has power. And so you start to see 
what God is saying to Moses, but to all of us, that in this fight against evil, in this battle between good and evil, I want you to participate. I want you to, with me, stand up against it. I want you to take what you have, and I will bless it. You know, if you're good with people, I'm going to take that and use that as part of how we fight against evil. Or if you're good at organizing, getting stuff done, I'm going to take that and breathe power into it as you rise up against evil. Right? If you're good at encouraging people, I'm going to take that and breathe into it and help in this fight against evil. If you're good at making money, I'm going to take that and breathe life into it to help in this fight against evil and the fight for good. Right? If you're good at detail-oriented things, I'm going to breathe life into that. Use it against the fight for evil. Let's say just one last thing on this, because this was, this was like a big aha for me. Um, I used to think of this question, what's in your hand, almost identically to when in the New Testament, Jesus feeds the multitudes. Remember, there's too many people and not enough food. Jesus says, what do you have? And the boy says, I've got some fish and some bread. And it seems impossible, and Jesus uses that to feed them all, right? You kind of remember this story? I used to think of those as kind of the same thing, that that's the New Testament version of what's in your hand, the Old Testament version of what's in your hand, being Moses and the staff. But I'm realizing that's not actually a very good comparison because the, and you may not have the same thing, but hopefully this helps get to the heart of what this is, I think, trying to get at. When Jesus says to the little boy, what do you have? And there's bread and fish that gets multiplied. I would say that theme is much more around provision. Right? The, the fact that God, who says, pray, give us this day our daily bread, that God can and does provide even when we don't think it's going to happen. Right? And this will become a big story in the Old Testament, too, that people don't think they'll have enough, and God provides water, and God provides manna. So provision is a really important part, and there is some kind of an imagery there, too, of trusting God in that. But I realize that's wrong to put that same imagery onto this, because this is not a story about provision. God isn't saying that staff is going to take care of the needs the material needs of the people, you know, give them food and water, all this kind of stuff. What is the staff especially for? It's to fight against evil. It's to fight against evil and to move towards God's promised land, towards God's Eden for people. Here's the only reason I bring that up. I do think, you know, I think we maybe overdo this fight imagery a little bit, and I want to be careful because that's my temperament to do that, so I could do that every week. Um, so I don't want to be imbalanced, but I also think we can be underbalanced in that um, and not be cognizant of the fact that this is kind of what's happening on a day-to-day basis. God is calling to life abundantly. A thief is trying to steal, kill, and destroy. We, like Moses, are called to take what's in our hand and what God has given us and bring it to the altar, not just as a sacrifice to God, but as, as artillery that's going to be, and not ever used against a person, but artillery that's going to be used in this fight against evil. That this is, the exchange isn't just giving something away. This exchange isn't even for the sake of provision, though that's real too. God says, pray, give us a day, they bread. What this is pointing to is that God takes what we have and uses it in the fight against evil. That we are all fashioned for some part of this fight against evil. And that's not the only part of the story. That's not the whole story, but it's a big part of the story. That the snake is real. And it can show up in the canes of the world. It can show up in the pharaohs of the world. It can show up in the spiritual oppression, the way it works in league with, with, with humans doing things. But when we take what we have, a big part of what we're taking, what we're having, what God will breathe into is for the fight against injustice, oppression, and evil. Do you see the importance of that? And I think then it helps us to, I don't I think there's an individual way to do this. I was actually thinking, right, that this whole past year, we have spent so much time and energy trying to raise money for that lot next door, 
for the purposes of bringing life and for fighting against death, right? And I thought, of course, there's an individual way we should all be thinking about what does it look like that where God takes the staffs in our hands and turns that into something. But really, doesn't, doesn't that lot represent our collective rod or staff, right? Like, a few years ago, that would have looked like an ordinary, uninspiring, insignificant thing, a used car lot that just happens to be next door to our church, right? But in the power of God, in the hands of God, that thing becomes a vanguard, right? That thing becomes a beacon for life and something that's directly fighting against evil. Like, that actually becomes like a really inspiring way for me to think of it, that if that's like a corporate example of that, what are the individual examples of that? What are the things that are already in our hands that when we give them to God, it's almost like it's cool, it's like, we, we give it to God, something happens, we take it back again, and we're like, now Moses is ready to go, right? And, and I think there's something for all of us in that. There's something in our hand that God will call us to give to God, but we're not giving it away. We're like giving it to God so that God can do some stuff with it, and then God gives it back to us. It's just now go. And uh, that, it's daunting to think of the reality of evil, but inspiring to think that the God who is the God of Abraham and of Jacob and of Isaac and of Adam and Eve and of Esther and of all these figures in the Bible. That's the same God who says to us, the snake is real, but so is who am I? I hear the cries of my people. So whenever there's cries of the people, we know God's heart is close to that. I will stand up against that. My plan will be to use you. And when I use you, I'm going to ask what's in your hand. And that's going to become part of this much larger story of the God who's calling people to life, fighting against evil, and like Moses, calling us to do our own little part. I believe that to the core I am. There is nothing Sunday schoolish about that for me. There's nothing just preach about. I believe that to the very core of my being, that that's who God is, that's what we're up against, and that's what God has called us to do, to participate. Amen? Amen. Let's pray on this together. Oh, God, the God who is Yahweh God, the God who is I am, the God who as the God of eternity past, the God who is of our present right now, the God of our entire future, the God who reigns over all for eternity. That same God calls us by name. Yahweh God, you call us by name. Let us listen for our own name to be called by God, just as God called on Moses, just as God called Jacob. God calls us by name. So God, even now, you call us by name. And before getting ready for the fight, we pause to remember that when you call us by name, that's first and foremost a declaration of love and belovedness, a declaration of who we are as an image bearer of you, a declaration of your infinite care and concern for us, of your deep love for us. It is a reminder that even as the Adams and the Eves and the Cains and everybody screw up what you have called us to, you in your grace continue to call us by name again to call us home, to be forgiven and renewed, strengthened and empowered. So Yahweh God, the God over our foremothers and forefathers, the God over the future to come, the God right now, we are heartened by the fact that the evil and injustice and suffering that's in the world is no surprise to you, that you are not indifferent to it, that you are not uncaring about it, that your heart grieves for and with a sense of fear and trepidation, we also take, a, take stock of the fact that we, are ne- we were n- never created to be bystanders, observers of this battle that's playing out where you are trying to bring people into the fullness of your Garden of Eden vision for them, for them to flourish and thrive. The attacks that happen in all the different ways, 
from evil. We are not meant to just sit on the sidelines and watch that like Moses, who is to go grab that snake by the tail, you have called us to step into what will often feel like scary places and actually are, and actually are dangerous at times. We're We're not being frivolous about that. We're not trifling with that. But we're also not turning a blind eye or a deaf ear to that, pretending that all there is to life is get our little house and savings account and count down the days till we meet you. That you have called us to be active participants in this. We kind of invite you to look at ourselves through the eyes that you give us to see ourselves, through the words and affirmations of those who are around us. Help us to see what the rod, the staff is in our lives, those things that would seem insignificant if it weren't for the breath of God that breathes life and power into them. Help us see things that actually just just feel like things we just kind of use in our everyday lives, that we use in our everyday jobs, to see the potential of what happens when you take those things that are in our hands and use them, not only for our good, but for the good of others. Think of the insecurity and anxiety that plagued Moses through this whole thing and are thankful for the fact that you normalize that, you humanize that, that when we think of the God who calls us to participate, it's unnerving. It does create questions of insecurity. Am I strong enough? Do I have enough faith? Am I smart enough? Do I really actually have something to offer? Those are things that are normal parts of the story. But I pray, and this is where it just gets so specific to your walking with each one of us, I just pray that in our own way, we can each keep wrestling with you, working through one insecurity and doubt and anxiety after another until we each get to our own moment and moments where we can hear you say, step into the fray, I'm with you. I'm the one who's doing this, but I'm calling you to participate, to step into it, to depend on me, to come to know what it is to be looking down something that terrifies you, but then looking back at the God who sustains you. And to know the intimacy of that, that is a particular kind of intimacy with you that can only be known through stepping out into the fray, trusting you. So God, I crave for that for all of us. I crave for that for myself, that we would know you in that kind of a way. And that we would then indeed see your kingdom come. And see your will be done here right now in our neighborhood, in our city, in the places where we're at each day, as it is in heaven. As we respond to you in worship, God, ask that you would help us to see you more clearly, because I think that's mostly what this account is about, to see Yahweh with a greater sense of clarity and majesty, just the far-reaching nature of who you are, the God who delivers us, who carries us. Think of how you say it in the covenant language at Mount Sinai. You say, like an eagle who cares for its children and brings it to safety. I am Yahweh God who cares for us. So let us see you. Let us be reminded that we are your beloved and that we are commissioned to join the fight. 
So move, move with us, in us, in these final moments we pray. Amen. If that song doesn't get us battle ready, I don't know what will. Can we all rise together for a closing benediction? There's a lot from this story for us to sit in, but let's just kind of, let's come to this reality that God wants us to see that evil's out there and that part of being commissioned by God is standing up against the forces of darkness, against evil. So let's remember these words. When we do see it for what it is, and we're meant to see it for what it is, we're meant to know, but God wanted Moses to see it was a real snake. It was scary. When we see it, what do we remember? A, that God calls you by name. B, that God sends you to participate with what God is doing. And finally, God will take what's in your hand and breathe on it. Breathe power work together with God, bringing forth the kingdom of God of heaven, on earth, and all God's people said, amen.